a new series. But before we do that, I, want to, I just want to pray. Well, God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for every person in this place today. We thank you, Jesus, that you know us, you knew us before we were formed in our mother's wombs, Lord. You knew us, you knew everything about us, Lord. You, Lord, you know how many hairs are on our head, Lord. You, you know the joys, the pains, the struggles that we face. And God, I just pray that as we leave this place today, that we would go out with a, a greater certainty, a greater knowledge of your love for us, God, a greater confidence of the hope that we have in you, a greater confidence in your word, a greater confidence in who you are, that, Lord Jesus, we would be built up and ready for every good work that you have prepared in advance for us to do. Pray for anyone here today, Lord, who's maybe still checking things out and aren't sure about who you are. I pray that you would bring revelation to their hearts, Lord, that they would begin to see and understand the truth of who you are, Lord, I pray. That we could know your saving grace, your, your, your power, your love for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're going to begin a new series this morning, and it's really uh, three mini-series in one series. Uh, we're going to be looking for the next nine weeks at some of our, our core values as a church, some of the things that are core values for us and have been since the, the church was started and will be for the next 10, 20, 50, and 100 years and until Jesus comes again, God willing, God keep us on these paths. These are core values that have been core since the church was started. I think we've got some photos of when this church building was originally built in uh, 1981. It was built. Um, and since the beginning of this church, the, the, the core values haven't changed. And we're going to have three different parts of this series, but this morning we're going to begin by looking at the Bible. The Bible is number one. The, not, the Bible is our foundation, it is the value, it is the foundation, it's the, the, the structure on which our faith is built. Without the Word of God, we, we do not have an authority. Without the, the Word of God, we, we don't have a foundation. The Word of God is our foundation. The Word of God is, is God's Word to us and it does not change. And as a church, we, we value God's Word. We believe it is God's Word to us. It is God's Word and it is accurate, it is unchanging, and it is the authority from God for us. Amen? And if you don't yet believe it, I pray that by the end of the service, you'll be really starting to think, maybe it is. <laughs> the Bible is God's Word and it is core value number one for us as a church. This morning, maybe you've come though and you're thinking, well, yeah, it might be a good book, Andrew, but how can it be God's Word to us? Maybe you're, you're wondering, you've got questions about, um, sorry, how did it get back to there? Um, how do we know it's true? Or maybe you're thinking, was it made up? Is it just people that wrote it down? Or even if it was true, how do we know it's been preserved accurately? How do we know that this is truly God's Word, that it was written as God's Word, it's been preserved as God's Word, and it is still God's Word today? I pray that by the end of this morning you'll have answers to those questions because in this, in this day and age that we live in, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to know not only what we believe and why we believe it, but also how to communicate this to those around us. And this morning we're really going to stay looking at the Bible and how we know it is God's Word to us. And next week we're going to look at how God's Word 
begins to work in our life and how it transforms us and how we can dig into God's Word. And then the third week in this mini-series will be how do we then communicate that Word to the world around us. But we live in a world that challenges what we believe. That when we stand up for what we believe, we can be so quickly criticised and some are even losing their jobs and careers because they're standing up on what they believe. We need to know what we believe, why we believe it, and how we communicate it to the world around us. And if you don't understand that, I pray that you will see that it is so important. If we don't, if we don't see the need to, ins- to understand this, if we don't see the need to really investigate it, I wonder, do we really understand the hope that is in this gospel? Do we really understand what Jesus has done? What is at stake for those around us if we don't know it and hold true to God's Word? It is so important for us that we do not deviate from God's Word. It is His Word to us. Before we talk about how we know it's true, I just want to look at briefly, what is the Bible? The Bible, the word Bible literally means the book. It's, the Bible is the book. And it has been for 1,500 years. If you look at the Old Testament, it's been the book, it's been the, the, the Bible, Old Testament for thousands of years. It's, it's the parchment, the scroll, it is literally the book. It's the first book that was ever printed on a printing press. And it has remained the book throughout history since it was written. It's more published than any other book every year. It's more read than many other book every year. It is the book to us from God. But we also need to understand that actually the book is made up of 66 different books. It's written by 40 authors over about 1,600 years. And there's history, there's poetry, there's prophecy, there's wisdom. We need to understand which bits of prophecy, which bits of history, which bits of poetry. Because if you interpret it all the same, you're going to get confused. But it's 66 books by 40 different authors over 1,600 years. And yet it is a unified, consistent message that does not deviate or change course or change direction or start to say different messages. You know, that is a miracle. You try and get 40 people to write down the same thing about something and about anything, and that can be difficult. You get 40 people in a room trying to discuss something and try and write down something that's accurate and consistent, but yet alone over 1,600 years. And it is one consistent message to us from God about who He is and what He has done and what He is like and who He wants to be in our lives. I want to use a, a couple of video clips this morning just because there is so much I want to say this morning, but we can't say all of it. So I found some little video clips that say these things in a brief but good visual way. So if we turn our eyes to the screen, we can have a little look about what is the Bible. We've got the sound there. The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And 
These prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling, and they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually they were conquered by the Babylonians who took them away into exile. Then at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible, what's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the law. That's Israel's five book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. Now, there were other Jewish writings being produced during this second temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believe that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So that's the Old and New Testament. But what did the early Christians think of the other Second Temple literature? Well, different groups had different views about some of these books, but we know they read them and valued these texts because they passed them along with the Jewish scriptures. Okay, so we've got the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. We've got these other Second Temple period works. Then the writing of the apostles about Jesus. And that's a lot of literature, so what's in my Bible? So the Christian movement has taken different forms over 2,000 years, and from the beginning, all Christians recognized the Tanakh and the New Testament as scripture. And for centuries, much of the Second Temple literature was read as part of the biblical tradition. The Catholic Church eventually made it official and called some of the books from this collection the Deuterocanonical books. 
Some Orthodox churches used even more books from this Second Temple literature. And then in the 1500s, during the Reformation, Protestant Christians wanted to go back to the oldest writings of the prophets and apostles, so they accepted only the Old and New Testaments. Okay, I think I got it. But how does a collection of books produced over a thousand years by all these different authors tell one unified story? Yeah, that's the question we'll address in our next video. There we go. So the, the Bible is not just a story, it is the story of God. It's what God has been doing and it's what has been preserved as His Word. If, we, if you missed the series on the Reformation, I encourage you to go back on the podcast and have a listen about the way uh, the Reformation came back to the Old and New Testament as it is today. And it is God's Word to us. It's, it is the Bible. It is the book. Uh, could we just go to the next slide there? Oops, wrong one. Um, but how do we know it's been preserved accurately? How do we know, uh, so these things were written down when they occurred, but how do we know it has been preserved and that we can trust what has been written? I want to play an, another little video from the movie The Case for Christ. In this movie, in case you haven't heard, it's Lee Strobel, an atheist who's going to different professionals and, and experts around the world to ask them about how they, how he, how they can claim that Jesus is who he says he is and that the scriptures are true and this is one little scene with one of those experts. Here we go. Thanks, guys. A bit of a history buff myself, so oh. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly intrigued with your archaeological work. Ah, uh, former life. Uh, former life, yes. I'm, uh, I'm a bit surprised, given your, uh, your stellar reputation, that you just gave all that up for, uh, for this. Would you like to be more specific? Well, it just seems to me that for the better part of 2,000 years, Christianity has been creating these these rituals and these rules. You know, they've erected these elaborate and often expensive cathedrals, and all of that to support a faith that I believe is is ultimately built on sand. And yet, it's all still standing. Yes, because people keep telling each other the same stories over and over again. Just because I write something down and I bury it in the dirt, it doesn't make it true. I think I'm beginning to see the crux of your visit. <laughs> Look, I, I understand that a number of people claim to have seen Jesus after his crucifixion, and some of them even wrote it down. But I guess my question is, how, how can we be sure of the reliability of those manuscripts? Well, the same way we authenticate any historical document, by comparing and contrasting the copies that have been recovered. It's called textual criticism. The more copies we have, the better that we can cross-reference and figure out if what the original was saying is historically accurate. And the earlier they come from in history, the better. Take Homer's Iliad, for example. Hmm? Is this real? It's as real as the Macedonian dirt that I dug it up from. Well, the Greeks considered this their Bible for many centuries. Yes, they did. That is one of 1,565 copies in existence today. Now, the Iliad was originally composed 800 years before Christ. Okay. This Greek copy is dated at the 3rd century AD. So, 800 and so, so that's, that's 1,100 years between this copy and the original, yes? Correct. There's only one ancient collection of writings that has more authenticated copies than the Iliad. Can you guess what that is? You're going to 
tell me? The Bible. The New Testament. And how many copies is that? To date, archaeologists have recovered 5,843 Greek New Testament manuscripts. That's four times as many as the Iliad. Really? The earliest fragment of the Gospel of John was found in ancient Egypt, and it dates to 2nd century AD. How close is that to the original? Less than 30 years. I have one of the fragments in my collection. It's quite a treasure, isn't it? <laughs> After the New Testament and the Iliad, the runners-up don't even come close. We only have 100 copies of Sophocles, seven copies of Plato's Tetralogies, and only five copies of anything by Aristotle. In fact, if you laid the surviving copies of Aristotle, one on top of the other, they would make barely four feet. You do the same with surviving copies of the New Testament, the stack would be a mile high. Nothing else in history even comes close. How is that for reliable? Is the Bible been re preserved accurately? Absolutely. There is more copies of the ancient text. There's more copies from that early time than any other book from history. There is the, the, the rules for how it was copied. We, I, I'd love to go into the detail of the, the rules that how it was copied were so strict that if it was if it was messed up, the whole thing would be thrown out and they would start again. The the way it was copied, the copies that have been copied, all say the same thing, and it, it has not been changed, it has not deteriorated, it has been preserved accurately. The external sources agree. There's other sources that, that talk about the things that happen in the Bible that just reinforce what the Bible says about history and about things that occurred. You can read things about Josephus and Pliny the, the Younger and others that wrote about history around the time of Jesus and throughout the Bible we have Egyptian people and, and Roman rulers and, and people in the Bible that it's simply reinforced the more we investigate history. And we could spend the next 10 weeks just looking at the, the um, historical evidences for the Bible, but I encourage you to do that in your own time or come and see me if you'd like some more information about that. But there is so much to reinforce that the Bible is an accurate preserved document that is accurate from history. The second thing I want to look at is the archaeological evidences for the Bible's authority and its accuracy from history. And I'm not an archaeologist, so again, I found a quick little video that goes for three minutes, and I encourage you, don't just look at the pictures and go, oh, I encourage you, lean in, really listen, try and absorb what he's saying about some of the characters from the Bible about the historical, archaeological proofs that we have for some of these people. So, are you ready? Let's listen in. Welcome to 3-Minute Bible Study, Archaeological Evidence for Biblical Figures. Like most ancient people generally, most people in biblical history have never been archaeologically found in ancient engravings. Occasionally, however, some of them are, and with rulers more likely than peasants to have their names engraved into the rocks, we'll begin with the kings and look at a few examples. King David, a key figure in the Old Testament, lived and reigned a thousand years before Christ and was the father of a long line of kings in his own bloodline, one of whom was defeated by the king of Aram in the 9th century BC. An inscription from that king was found at Tel Dan in 1993. In it, he records his victory over a king of Israel and over a king from the house of David. 
thus establishing external archaeological reference for King David. We'll look next at Amri, the wicked father-in-law of Jezebel, who during the divided kingdom ruled Israel in the north in the 9th century B.C. The Bible records his reign, the reign of his son Ahab, and the reign of a Moabite king named Misha, who was forced to pay tribute to Israel. A record from that same Moabite king was found in 1868 in Jordan. The Misha steel refers to all three of these people, Misha himself, king of Moab, Amri, king of Israel, and Amri's son, king of Israel after him. Another king of the northern tribes that is recorded in tribute payment is Jehu. Though this time the king of Israel is not receiving tribute, he's paying it to the king of Assyria. The black obelisk of Shalmaneser discovered in Nimrod in 1846 depicts payment being received from lesser vassal kings, including tribute submitted from Jehu to Assyria. A century later, the northern kingdom of Israel will be destroyed by the Assyrians. And in the south, in the reign of Hezekiah, they will almost conquer all of Judah as well. They took the fortified cities of Judah and threatened the capital of Jerusalem itself, but did not take it. This is recorded in the Bible and also in this Assyrian prism, where the invaders commemorate their taking of 46 strongholds and of pinning Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage, but with no mention of taking the city, which did not happen. Compare Isaiah 37. The last Old Testament king we'll look at is Jehoiakim, who was taken captive to Babylon and was later released from prison and provided with rations from the Babylonian king. The Babylonian Chronicle records his being taken away captive, and the Babylonian Rationalist records rations provided to Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Inscriptions going? of New Testament figures include Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor at the crucifixion of Christ, and the ossuary or bone box of Caiaphas, the high priest who counseled the Jewish Senate to have Jesus killed. From Acts 13, we have Sergius Paulus, the administrator in Paphos, who became a believer. And from the Delphi inscription, we know when Galileo was proconsul in Corinth, who Paul stood before in Acts 18. Another interesting engraving is Erastus of Corinth, quite likely the same Erastus who is both a believer and the city treasurer or manager of Corinth, mentioned in Romans 16 as sending greetings to fellow saints in Rome. For external evidences on Jesus, watch for a separate three-minute study on the historicity of Jesus. More info at 3minutebiblestudy.com. There you go. If you want to look up Jesus, you can look up that one. Did you hear that? I love that last one he included. Erastus. It's there. It's archaeological evidence for Erastus that we read about a couple of weeks ago. Erastus. Love that name. <laughs> at times people criticize the Bible. At times people talk about the Bible and, and, and talk about it in a way that sort of say there is no logical foundation for believing it. But there is so much evidence, there is so much that confirms and just establishes that God's Word is true. That from Old Testament to New Testament, it has been preserved, it is accurate. The the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were dug up, they just reinforced again how accurate God's Word was. It hadn't changed from that time period to now. And even today, as we read God's Word, the, the Scriptures that we have are translated directly from the Greek and the Hebrew into the language we have today. As scholars get together and they, they do everything they can to try and translate it accurately. But I encourage you, there's no perfect translation. Read lots of translations. Understand that the, the fullness of what God wants us to learn through His Word. History proves it to be true. Records show that it's been faithfully preserved. And the third thing I want to look at this morning is a, a little bit of a different evidence. And it's not an external evidence about the Bible, but it's about something in the Bible. And it's this. If Jesus is who He said He is, and He rose from the dead, we must pay attention to His claims. If Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the Son of God, if He died and rose again, then I believe he has, His Word has some authority. 
and we should hear what he has to say about this book, the book, the Bible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, as Kim read from this morning, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You know, if, if Jesus isn't who he said he is, and, and he didn't die and rise again, then our faith is futile. If, if, there's, if it's not reliable, then it's all a waste of time. There'd be no reason for us to be here today. But I believe with all my heart that it is true, and that what Jesus has said to have done, he did do, and we can trust not only Jesus' word, but the word that Jesus trusted in also. And just in case you're in any doubt about who Jesus is and that the scriptures about him are true, we've got one last little clip from the movie The Case for Christ. And if you haven't seen it, if you haven't read the book, I encourage you, read the book because there is so much more evidence for the fact of who Jesus is if you really read and study about the reality of those things. Here we go. Yeah, well, I, 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 so I read your book, and there's something that stuck out to me. How can anyone talk about historical evidence for the resurrection when the resurrection, by nature, is a miracle, right? We all know miracles can't be proven scientifically. Correct, but we don't have to prove a miracle to prove a resurrection. Okay. Love to hear you explain that one. I just have to show that Jesus died and he was seen afterwards. Right, but the very people who claim that they saw him are religious zealots. So in my line of work, we call those biased sources. Well, I'm not interested in bias either, Mr. Strobel. You see, I care about the facts for professional and, and personal reasons. Right, so where are the facts, Dr. Habermas? The resurrection narrative is more legend than it is history. Really? Well, not according to historical records. Did you know that we have a report of the resurrection with specific eyewitnesses that dates all the way back to within months of the resurrection itself? That source also adds that 500 separate people saw Jesus at the same time. We're not talking decades or centuries after the cross, Mr. Strobel. It's months. Third witnesses, but that's still just one historical source, the Bible. Wrong. There are at least nine ancient sources, both inside and outside the Bible, confirming that disciples and others encountered Jesus after the crucifixion. But, but they were already followers of Jesus. Well, not all of them. Think of Saul of Tarsus. He originally was a persecutor of Christians. He hunted them down and killed them. Yet he died the Apostle Paul, proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God. But, but let's not kid ourselves here. People die for lies all the time. 900 people died drinking poison Kool-Aid at Jonestown. True, and there are other examples like that throughout history, but here's the difference. People don't willingly drink poison for something that they know is a lie. Fair point. If the early church martyrs knew that the resurrection was a hoax, then why would they willingly die for it? Would you? So I believe if we look at the evidences of, uh, of history, of all the things that we can't go into this morning, I believe you'll come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he said he is. And if Jesus is who he said he is, we need to know what he thinks about Scripture. Jesus supports the Scriptures. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came and didn't say, forget about the old scriptures. He said, no, I am coming to fulfill them. Just like it said in that video we watched earlier about the story of God had been written and not finished. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, the writings of the Old Testament. Jesus came not to abolish them, but to fulfill the prophecies of those scriptures. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, says this, Jesus answered, it is written. So many times he comes back to the Word of God and, and quotes Old Testament scriptures. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus trusted in scripture. When he was tempted in the wilderness, where did he turn? To scripture. He quoted scripture. He claimed scripture. He held it in very, very high regard. He believed it was the Word of God. He, he, he totally trusted the authority of Scripture. He says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on the very Word of, that comes from the mouth of God. The Word of God to us is life. It sustains us. It gives us life. And the Word of God is written for us that we might know Him and have life and even eternal life. Jesus trusted in Scripture. John chapter 10, verse 35 Jesus says, Scripture cannot be set aside. Or if the New King James Version, it says, the Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus totally trusted in the authority of Scripture that it does not change, it does not deviate. It is God's Word to us. It is the Bible, the Word. And Jesus is the Word made flesh. So if the Bible... Jesus held it in high regard. What does the Bible say about itself? I want to finish with this point this morning. In two t oh, sorry, before I do, Charles Spurgeon said this, The Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. If you want to know what the Word of God is, if the Word of God is true, I encourage you, study the Word of God. Turn to the Word of God, open the Bible, and begin to read what it says. Begin to study it, investigate it, and what it says in the Old Testament, and then what it says in the New Testament. Read the book of Hebrews. It talks about the shadow of the Old, the, the, of the old Covenant and then the, the, the realities of the New Covenant. Read the Bible and discover that it is true. It is powerful. It doesn't have to be defended. It is powerful in itself. But what does the Bible say about itself? Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. It says, Continue... In what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible is the foundation that we understand who God is, our sinfulness, and how we can have salvation through Jesus Christ. It is the authority, it tells us how to be saved through Him. And he goes on in verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Some Scripture, no. Most Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. You know, this morning, if you were reading in the CFC Daily Bible Reading Plan, uh, this morning you may have read with me Leviticus 13, and you're thinking, this is really fascinating about skin diseases, and if your hair turns white, or if it turns yellow, if you're unclean or, or clean. And it talks about how the, the, the clothing gets uh, soiled and, and a little bit mouldy. What do you do with it? And you're thinking, what? That's really fascinating, God. Why is that in your Word, God? And at times we can struggle. We cannot comprehend why God's included certain things, you might think. But all Scripture is God-breathed. If it doesn't seem to make sense, I haven't understood it yet. It is God breathed to us and it is useful to equip us, to train us, to rebuke us, 
to equip us for every good work that God has prepared in advance for us. We need His Word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says this, we, have also, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, who is Jesus. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This word is reliable and we do well to listen to it. It says all, all prophets from, of, of Scripture, all prophets anytime who speak the Word of God are not speaking things they've come up with them themselves. They are speaking the words of God given to them. Although the Bible was written by 40 different authors, it wasn't those authors that came up with great ideas. They didn't come up with great poetry and great, script, uh, great words to say. God breathed, God inspired them in what to say and they wrote it down. It wasn't them just coming up with good ideas. Finally, I want to read um, Jeremiah chapter 1. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. He says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then Jer Jeremiah replies to God, Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Maybe you need to claim that promise today. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. God has spoken through his people, through the prophets, through his scripture, the, the truth of who he is through through history, what He has done and how we can be saved through Jesus Christ. And to be totally honest, I think the, the, the crux of the issue when we're discussing with people the authority of God's Word, in essence what it comes down to, I think, is do we want to admit, do we accept that there is a Creator God who knows all things, who made all things and can speak to His people? Because if you don't believe in a God who created the world, it's hard to believe that God inspired a book. But if you know God created all things, that God can do all things, it's not hard to believe that He inspired people to write these 66 books that would come together to form the Old and New Testament Bible that we have today. God has promised to preserve His Word. He has kept His Word. And we can believe that He has spoken every word to us through those who wrote it, that it is His Word and it is good for us. It gives us life, it gives us hope, it is the foundation on which we rest our hope. God's Word is true and it can be trusted. It brings life, let's never deviate from this. As a church, God help us never to deviate from His Word, to not go and think, oh, that's wrong because we've learned that this is true and, well, in today's society, this doesn't mean that anymore because, well, we know this and this and this now, so that doesn't apply anymore. God's Word is true. It is God-breathed. It is life to us. 
We need to read it and apply it in context, but God's Word is always true. You know, you can try and twist God's Word and make it say things it doesn't say, but God's Word is true when it is, when it is read accurately and understood accurately and interpreted accurately through Scripture. God's Word is true and it can be trusted. The core value, number one core value of our church is that we will uphold and proclaim biblical truth always. We never want to leave that. We never want to deviate from it. That is a core value of us as a church. I'm going to ask the band to come, and I just want to read one last verse in John chapter 1 and verse 1. It says this, In the beginning the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him. And nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created. And His life brought light to everyone. So we get that next one up. It's disappeared. (laughs) It's that last part of the last verse there. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. You know, Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus is the living Word. And the Word of God to us is life. It is light. It leads us into righteousness. It leads us to salvation. It leads us to everlasting life with Him if we will hold to it. And I want to encourage you. Maybe you're thinking, but Andrew, how do I I understand it? How do I get the most out of it? How do I let it change me, Andrew? We'll come back next week and we're going to talk about that. (laughs) But He is... The Word made flesh. The Word of God to us is life and we must hold on to it. Don't just sit on the shelf and say, yeah, I've got a Bible. Open it daily. Read it and let it change you. Let it shape you and mold you for His glory. And He will move in your life, I believe it, with all my heart. Can we stand now just as we close in prayer? Thank you, Jesus. Lord God, I just thank you for your Word. God, we thank you for your word which is written that we might understand who you are, that we might see our own sinfulness, Lord, that we might come to repentance and surrender our lives to you, God. Lord Jesus, I just pray for anyone here this morning who maybe they're they're seeing for the first time the authority of your word, that you, Jesus, are who you say you are, that who we talk about as this one who came and gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin, that you are our saviour. And I just thank you, Jesus, that your word tells us that anyone who calls on your name will be saved. Anyone who turns away from sin and turns to you and follows after you will be saved. I just pray, Lord, Lord, for anyone in this place today that's in that place. Right now, you can admit your sin to God. You can admit your, your need for forgiveness. And just begin to say, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. If you believe it in your heart, if you willingly surrender your life and say, God, lead me, help me, guide me, I want to understand this hope that you have for me. He will lead you on. He will bring life, even eternal life to you. Well, God, I just pray for us as a church that you would help us to hold on to your word. And over the next couple of weeks, that you'd help us to grow in our understanding of how to live by your word and to proclaim and, and tell others the truth of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.